Let's start with a word of prayer today. Our Father, as we come to the end of the book of Haggai, we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us today, that you will convict our hearts, that you will speak truth from your word to us, that we may be more faithful uh, unto you, more obedient unto you, uh, eagerly obedient to do your will, Lord. And uh, so we commit this time um, to studying your word in order that we may apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you want most in life? What do you want the most, more than anything else in life? That's a, that's a very important question. And the interesting thing about this question is, while it's a, a pretty simple question, in fact, I'd say it's incredibly simple as a question, it reveals so much. Your answer reveals so much. But the answer to this question is really often hiding behind the things that we do. The things that we spend time doing, the things that we spend time pursuing and chasing after, the things we spend the most time thinking about. And yet, the funny thing is that the answer from our lips may be completely different from the answer that one could gather by looking at our lives. And this is what I call the heart-mind disconnect. It's where our mind wants, wants one thing. On an intellectual level, we want one thing, but our heart wants something else. That is, on an intellectual level, there's something that we know we're supposed to value, we're supposed to pursue, we're supposed to want on an intellectual level. But on an emotional or practical level, there's something else that we actually value. Our series in the book of Haggai is ultimately about the heart-mind disconnect. The challenge that this little book gives us is absolutely enormous. The challenge that we see in this book is to get our priorities straight, to to get rid of the heart-mind disconnect, to, to align our intellectual values with our heart values, to do more than just resolve with lip service to live a life that pleases and glorifies God, but to actually live a life that pleases and glorifies God. The challenge is to give more than just lip service, but to give life service. And that must start with every one of us making God our top priority in life, because as soon as we replace him with something else, everything else falls apart. We'll experience the tension of the heart-mind disconnect. The values that we give intellectual assent to won't be reflected in our actions or in the goals that we pursue. So Haggai was a prophet sent by God to the people of Israel who had returned from Babylonian exile coming back into Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. And after spending 70 years in exile, uh, King Cyrus had allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem where they found the city in ruins. Everything was in shambles, including the temple. Under Ezra, the people had started to rebuild the foundation of the temple, but they had stopped short of completing the work because their neighbors felt threatened by their desire to worship God. So for the sake of peace with their neighbors, the Israelites stopped working on the reconstruction of the temple. 
And eventually they just kind of forgot about it. They put it off and put it off. They forgot about it and forgot about it. They put it off until about 16 years later when God sends Haggai to speak to the people in Jerusalem, instructing them to rebuild the temple. And so for these 16 years, these people were suffering something of a a heart-mind disconnect. They knew something intellectually, but it wasn't being reflected in their actions. They, They considered themselves to be people of God, children of God, but their actions were living a different message. Their priorities were elsewhere. They wanted peace and prosperity, and these were a higher priority for the people than honoring God. And as a result, they suffered. They felt no joy. They felt no sense of satisfaction or fulfillment in life. And then, that, didn't, that still wasn't enough to change them, so God sends a drought and a famine, ensuring that they wouldn't prosper and thereby gain an artificial sense of self-sufficiency. That is the false sense of confidence that they can make it without God, that they don't need God. So he disciplines them. God raised up and sent Haggai to challenge them and to challenge us as readers, right? To straighten out their priorities. And that had to start with the message, which as we've seen had been, has been all but forgotten in the American church. The message that we must repent the message that we must turn from our sin, that we are all sinners and that we must turn from our sin. In the second half of the 20th century, many good and decent teachers fell for the lie that repentance means nothing more than changing our minds. And that's it, just intellectual. Particularly changing our minds about Jesus as Lord, apparently overlooking the fact that our beliefs are ultimately reflected in our actions. Remember, demons believe that Christ is Lord. And at least they have the wisdom to shudder at that thought. And the only thing that separates the Christian from the demon in this sense is not just an intellectual acknowledgement, not just bringing our minds to, to recognize that Jesus is Lord because the demons do too, but a heart that willfully and eagerly submits resulting in changed actions. Sure, it starts with a changed mind, but it can't stop there. It has to be played out in our lives if it's real. That's the indication. That's the proof that it's real. Repentance is about changing our actions, but that has to start with changing our attitudes, changing our minds. So how do we change our attitudes into action? That's what we're going to see today as we continue our study of the book of Haggai and finish up our study of the book of Haggai. So having shown us how quickly these people who were working on the temple became discouraged as their hearts once again became inclined to go back into sin. Haggai shows us how God encouraged the remnant of the people who had repented to continue their work on the temple. And so he reminded them of his presence with them in the present, uh, the promise to them that he had made to their forefathers and to the fulfillment of the, uh, the promises to come specifically Christ. So the last passage, if you look back one verse, the last passage came in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. Uh, Our passage today comes just about two months later, a little bit more than two months later. We read this, verses 10 to 12 of chapter 2 of Haggai. On the 24th day of the ninth month, 
in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. So what we're going to see in this passage today is a message that's similar to the first message that we saw in the first chapter of the book of Haggai, as that it's, uh, this part right here is something of a scornful rebuke. You see, the people were doing the right thing on the surface, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. So externally, it looked like the Lord's work was being done. But God isn't concerned or pleased with how something looks on the surface externally if it isn't done with the proper motivation. He's just as offended, if not more so, by a whitewashed tomb than he is by a tomb that reflects its internal reality, death. So, so God instructs Haggai to illustrate this principle for the priests by asking them about the law of Moses as it pertains to holy or, or consecrated meat. Before we, do, before we look at this, let's, let's address one thing uh, and be clear about one thing. God isn't asking this question because he doesn't know the answer. I remember once being told that a good attorney, when examining or, or cross-examining a witness, will never ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. And we see the same thing with God whenever he asks a question. He knows the answer. He knows everything. So whenever he asks a question, we have to understand that he's asking not for his personal benefit, but for the benefit of the one he's asking and for our benefit as the readers. We get to learn vicariously instead of him coming to us and asking us a question to show us a shortcoming that we have. So God asks them this question about consecrated meat. See, under the Mosaic law, once an animal was offered as sacrifice, it was deemed holy. It was deemed consecrated. It was set apart for God. And under certain circumstances, a portion of the meat could be kept by the person making the sacrifice who had offered it. And that person was allowed to take the meat home and cook it and eat it. And yet, that meat that he took home with him was still consecrated. It was still considered holy. So the first question that God asks is, what happens when this consecrated meat comes into, something, uh, comes into contact with something that isn't consecrated, that isn't holy? And so he gives a, a hypothetical scenario. Let's say you've got this holy meat tucked away inside your garment, inside your clothes, not the yeah FD, not FDA approved at all, right? Uh, you, you've got this meat tucked away inside your clothes. It comes into contact with some other food. It comes into contact with bread or stew or wine or oil or any other kind of food that is not consecrated unto God. So I, I guess you could say it's just kind of neutral. Does the holiness of the holy meat, the consecrated meat, get transferred to these other things that it comes into contact with. In other words, if, you're, if, if the, the meat that you're carrying home comes into contact with oil, does the oil become holy too? 
If it comes into contact with the wine, does the wine become holy too? If it comes into contact with a lima bean, does the lima bean become holy too? Do you have a holy lima bean? No. The answer is no. And the priests knew, so they give a a straightforward answer. No, if consecrated holy meat comes into contact with something else that isn't consecrated as holy, that doesn't render whatever it came into contact with as being holy as well. Okay? Easy, straightforward question, straightforward answer. So far, so good, right? Everybody following? But God isn't done. That's only half of the illustration. He's about to deliver the punchline. Let's continue. Verses 13 and 14. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so every work of their hands and what they offer here, what they offer there is unclean. So this question changes the scenario a little bit. So let's say that you're, you're unholy, you're unclean because you came into contact with a corpse. Under the law, that rendered you unclean. And now you come into contact with that lima bean or that wine or that oil. The first question that God asked reveals to us that holiness doesn't transfer to something else. But what about unholiness? Does that transfer? Ah, that's a different question. That's putting the An interesting twist on it. The answer to this one is yes, it does. If a person has touched a corpse, they're rendered unclean. And so whatever they touch, if they have not been cleansed, becomes unclean as well. That means that if they touch a corpse and they come into contact with any other type of food, any any food, that food... The, the, the uncleanness from the person transfers onto that food. It's unclean, whatever it comes into contact with. And so at this point, we'd say, hey, the priests are doing pretty good. The priests are, are batting, batting a thousand here. You know, they're batting a hundred percent. And so you might be wondering the same thing that they were probably wondering after these two questions. What, is, what does any of this have to do with Israel? And here we are, you know, 25, 2,600 years later, and we might ask, well, what does this have to do with us today? It had everything to do with Israel, and it has everything to do with us today. So Haggai explains to them by declaring the principle that's behind the idea of uncleanness, and it's the principle that's at work here. He's telling them everything that you touch is becoming unclean because you are unclean. He's telling them the reason that this temple is unclean before God is because you are still unclean before God. There are two very important implications here, very serious implications, which both apply to the people of Israel and and to us today just as much as it applied to, to the people that Haggai was preaching to here. The first point is that every single human being on the face of the planet has been contaminated by death. 
every one of us. The Apostle Paul said that the wage of sin is death. Okay. He also tells us that all have sinned. So this is a reality for us, that every one of us has come into contact with death. And by that, because of that, we are unclean. Paul tells us, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all people. So these people to whom Haggai spoke were no exception. And today, you and I, apart from God's grace, are no exception. We are all born into this world as sinners, by nature and by choice. And apart from God's redeeming work, every single one of us is spiritually dead. Every single one of us is separated from God. That is to say, we all start out in the same place. We all start out as children of wrath, to use the term that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 2. The problem that the people in Haggai's time faced is the same problem that a lot of churches today are faced with. They didn't see themselves as spiritually dead and thus offending God. They didn't see themselves as children of wrath. In the book of Revelation, the Lord addresses a church in which almost everyone thought that they were spiritually alive when the reality was that they were spiritually dead. Revelation chapter 3 starts with the Lord addressing the church of Sardis through the apostle John. We read this, Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Who's that? That's Jesus, just for a nutshell answer. He says, I know your works, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I just want to stop there long enough to point out that this church in Sardis, they are a New Testament, New Covenant church. They had the same problem that the people in Haggai's day had, and it's the same problem that we see in a lot of churches in our own day and age. It's unfortunate to say the very least that the Old Testament isn't preached more in the pulpits across our nation because as Paul points out to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What scripture was Paul specifically referring to when he wrote that? While the same principle absolutely and you know, without a doubt applies to the New Testament as well, that's scripture too, he was specifically referring to what we now call the Old Testament. So what we see here is that this New Testament church in Sardis is being addressed with the same problem that the people had in Haggai's day. Here in Revelation chapter 3, we find a church that God describes the exact same way. You have a reputation for being alive, But let me tell you the truth. You're dead. You're dead. They had a reputation. That is, they were known for being spiritually alive, but the truth is that they were spiritually dead. And here's the crazy thing. They didn't even know it. They didn't even know that they were spiritually dead. 
And there's only one thing that I can think of that's worse than being spiritually dead, and that's to be spiritually dead and completely unaware of your condition. And so the Lord brings their condition to their attention through the pen of the Apostle John, who continues delivering the words in the counsel of, of God to them, writing this in the verses that follow, verses 2 to 6. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, this is a rebuke. These are strong words. They probably sound a little bit harsh to you, but a reality check is always going to be harsh. God's telling them, wake up. Come to your senses. Look at your lives and realize that they clearly indicate that you are walking the highway that leads to hell. These are people who were part of the church that God is talking to here. These are people who go to church. They'd heard the gospel. They probably heard it a lot of times. But the gospel hadn't penetrated their hearts and minds. And he spells out the cure for this condition here. Repent. Repent. Not in mind only, but what is God looking at here? He's looking at their actions, their deeds, their their works. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. And God's looking at their works and saying, it's not complete. There's something missing here, and so this isn't pleasing to me. Because good works... Good works should flow from a changed heart. But here's what we need to understand. This was a church that had a reputation for being alive. On the surface, everything looked peachy keen. On the surface, everything looked great. It looked like these were real, genuine Christians. It looked, on the surface, like they were doing all these good works. And that's what they were known for, all these good works. But the problem was that all of their works were being defiled because the people who were doing these good works were defiled. And the people were defiled because they were failing to repent of their sin. And thus even their best works were like filthy rags unto the Lord. See, the principle here is that God doesn't just want us to do the right things. He wants us to do the right things for the right Reasons, with the right motivation, with the right attitude, with the right heart. And so, here in the book of Haggai, God sends Haggai to address the Israelites because while they were doing the right things on the surface, they hadn't really repented of their sin yet. And as a result, the Lord couldn't be pleased with what they had to offer. 
It wasn't acceptable to him because it was unclean. Because sin, death, is contagious. You see, the law of Moses has a lot to say about uh, you know, being clean and what you need to do in order to be clean. But we have to remember, what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? It was always to be a tutor to Christ. It was always to point to the people's need for a Savior. So when they were rendered unclean by, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, they were to abstain from touching anything that had been consecrated unto God because that would render that item unclean as well. And so this was all to show them, all, all these cleanliness laws, it was all to show them the pervasive and contagious nature of sin. It was all a picture which illustrated their need for constant repentance. All the water in the world can't render somebody spiritually cleansed. And for them, it couldn't render them spiritually cleansed after touching a corpse because without realizing the need that this was pointing them to, the need to be made clean before God, not by water, but by repentance, they were still as dead spiritually as a corpse was physically. So verse 14 here in Haggai 2 tells us that every work of their hands was corrupted by sin. Everything they did was tainted by sin. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that people are as evil or as wicked or are as bad as they can possibly be. All it means is that everything they do is corrupted by sin. Everything that we do in our human flesh, nature, is corrupted by sin. And the same principle applies today. For the person who has not been cleansed of sin through repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ, sin corrupts everything they do. Even the stuff that looks right and good and moral, maybe even righteous on the surface. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 of of his second letter to Timothy. Verses 1 to 4, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we'd look at this and we'd say, wow, that doesn't sound like a very nice group of people, does it? And we'd be right. We'd be correct to say that there's obviously a very serious Sin problem for anyone who could be described with these adjectives. But that's not even the most problematic of issues. The biggest problem is revealed in the next verse. Verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And he says, avoid such people. Wait a minute, who's he talking about here? Who's Paul talking about? 
He's talking about people who go to church. He's talking about people who have professed faith in Christ. On the surface, it, it, it looks like they're a Christian. They're doing all the right things. They, they, they believe all the right things, but God is looking past the surface. God's looking at the heart. Yes, he wants people to profess faith in Christ. Yes. But he doesn't want them to profess faith in Christ just so that they can feel okay and forgiven about their sins and go right back to it, living in unrepentant sin. And so we have to see what God is saying to us here. I think it's safe to say that when you look at these texts, we're forced to ask ourselves some very hard questions. Is my faith superficial? Is it just an an external thing that I, I... put out there for people to see so that people think I'm a good person, so that I feel like I'm a good person, but it's not an inward reality? Would God say these things, any of these things he said to the church in Sardis, any of these things he's said in 2 Timothy, any of the things he's saying through Haggai, would God say these things about me? Do I have more than just the appearance of godliness? Or is the power of God being demonstrated in my life because I am clinging to Christ with everything within me and I'm learning to hate my sin and to repent of it regularly? See, there's a sentiment in the American church that you shouldn't ask these types of questions. You shouldn't challenge people to to think about these things. You shouldn't challenge anybody's faith. You shouldn't challenge the person who professes faith in Christ to look more closely at their lives and see if it's the real deal. And this sentiment that we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable by challenging them to examine their faith is absolute nonsense. It is unbiblical. It is foolish. Look at it this way. Let's say that you have the most precious and beautiful jewel in the world. What do you do with it? Do you just hide it away and never look at it? Or do you put it out someplace where you can behold its beauty and examine it regularly? If you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, your life in him is more precious and more beautiful than any jewel on earth. So put it out on display. Look at it closely. Examine it. The lesson for the people that Haggai's addressing here is the same as it is for us. Apart from grace, all of our good works are corrupted by sin, rendered unacceptable and unpleasing to God if we are not repenting from and waging war against the sin in our lives. Haggai continues, verses 15 to 19. He says, now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, but there were 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you 
and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The people were grieved. The people were grieved in their hearts when God told them that the works of their hands were corrupted by sin, that the works of their hands were unpleasing to him. And they repented. In similar fashion to what we saw in chapter 1, Haggai urges them to consider the relationship between their sense of joy, their sense of satisfaction in life, or, or lack thereof, and between their faithfulness to God, or, again, the lack thereof. To consider the correlation between their struggles and what their priorities had been. And we see that there's a change here. Instead of just addressing The present as it relates to the past, he's now giving them instruction for the future. He instructs them to consider these things from this day onward. So we were dealing with this half before, you know, the the present to the past. Now we're dealing with the present to the future. It's good and maybe even necessary for us to remember where we came from. To remember what God delivered us from to remember how much we used to love sin, to remember how completely sinful we were, what we valued, what we longed for before God opened our eyes, making us aware of our sin. Haggai's instructing the people to remember where they once were and who they were apart from God's grace in order that they could grow in and live out the reality of what God's grace does, the changes God's grace brings about in a person's heart. I don't know about you, but when I think about what God saved me from and who I was, I still get choked up. And what I've found is that often when we find ourselves ungrateful for God's grace, thus possibly even abusing God's grace. It's because we need to remember and remain mindful of who we once were and where we came from. God says, consider what I saved you from. Consider that you wouldn't turn to me no matter what until this point. The people had been disobedient. They had, at the very least, broken the first commandment, which is that you you shall have no other gods other than God. But what happens when we give something or someone other than God first priority in our minds, in our lives, in our hearts, is that we exchange the truth for a lie. We trade God in for another God. We traded God, big G, in for a God, little g. We trade him in for something less than. And these people were all guilty of that. But they had confessed and they had repented. They were ready to do more than just do the right thing. 
They are ready to do the right thing for the right reason. For the glory of God. That must be the motivation for everything in life for us. Everything that we do must be driven by this simple and yet not so simple motivation. Doing it for the glory of God. And so because the people repented, turning from their sin, giving God first priority in their hearts and lives once again, God tells them from this day on, I will bless you. Haggai offers one final word to Israel. Last four verses of the book, verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you. O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God says from this day on, I'm going to bless you. And we might be asking, to what extent? How is God going to deal with them in the future? He says he's going to bless them, but, but what does that mean? Does it, you know, is it to a lesser extent than he would have if they had repented sooner? No. No. And here we see how God is going to bless Israel. Power will be restored to them as God will shake the earth and overthrow the kingdoms of the nations. See, the city of Jerusalem had experienced hardship in recent years in Haggai's day. First of all, because the city had been in shambles, right, and and the whole thing needed to be rebuilt. But also because of the drought and the famine that the Lord had sent to try to discipline them so that they'd come back to him. And as a result of the drought and the famine and all the resources that were spent on rebuilding the city, their power and their resources were limited, to say the least. They didn't have a huge military that could go up against the Persian Empire, for example. They were vulnerable. They were vulnerable. But God promises to Zerubbabel, the son of Judah, that the kings and the kingdoms of their enemies would fall, and it would be by the Lord's doing. And Zerubbabel would preside over the restored kingdom of Israel. Zerubbabel would be like God's signet ring. The signet ring was something that a king would use to authenticate and seal his decrees. If you got some you know, demand from the king and it didn't have the seal on there, it was no good. And God is telling Zerubbabel, that he would be like his signet ring. And we know that Zerubbabel had a very special place with God because Zerubbabel would be in the bloodline 
in his generation through which the bloodline of King David would flow. In fact, both Matthew and Luke trace the genealogy of Jesus back through Zerubbabel because God had, in his sovereignty, chosen him for this purpose. Let us never forget that just as Zerubbabel was chosen by God to represent God in his day and age, you and I are called by God to represent God in our day and age. That's why Paul said that in light of God's redemptive work in us, the fact that we are a new creation by having saving faith in Christ Jesus, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He's entrusted with us this message of reconciliation, the gospel, and asked us to be faithful and obedient, to proclaim it as ambassadors, as ambassadors for Christ. In the end, because the people to whom Haggai preached had repented of their sin and made God first priority in their lives, God promises peace to his people. And this peace wasn't going to come by their own might. It wasn't going to come by their own doing in any way. The peace was going to come by God's doing. He says that he was going to cause the horses and their riders to fall by the swords of their brothers. What does that mean? It means God is going to stir up civil war in the hearts of the people who are coming against Israel. He's going to set them at war against one another. God takes the initiative. God fights the battle. God brings peace to his people. And this was a foreshadowing of the peace that he gives to his people today. A peace that was provided by the one who bore the wrath against our sin, which we deserved. It's a peace that's only available by the grace of God through saving faith in Christ alone. So the book of Haggai, good book. It demonstrates for us that God does more than just forgive those who will repent and turn to him through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He forgives, but he does more than that. He also redeems. He forgives and he restores. He forgives and he blesses. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And I urge you today to examine your life and ensure that God is truly your top priority as reflected through your actions. And that everything you do is being done with one simple principle behind it. You're doing it for the glory of God. Examine your life. Measure it against the word of God that you may be sure that you're not just doing the right things superficially. You're not just doing the right things on the surface, but you're doing the right things for the right reasons. To glorify God 
and to live a life that demonstrates the reality of his power, of his life, and of his abiding presence within you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us, rebukes us, challenges us, urges us to turn more fully to you. And so, Lord, in the silence of our hearts, we we lay our hearts out before you this morning and ask you to purify us. We ask you to convict us, fill us with conviction about anything, Lord, that we need to repent of. And teach us to hate whatever that is. Teach us to hate anything that offends you. And teach us, Lord, to live lives that are lived in your presence for your glory, under your authority, eager to submit to you, eager to do your will, in order that your power may truly be seen in us, that it wouldn't just be a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness. No, Lord, we want nothing less than the real thing. So purify our hearts before you. Give us the power. Give us the strength and the wisdom to repent and to turn to you that we may glorify you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.